0: Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is uh, Wednesday, May 8th, 2013, and uh, this is going to be episode uh, 1126 of the Survival Podcast, and we're calling into discussion with Greg Carter the World Economist. I'll have Greg on in just a moment. Let's go ahead and take care of our housekeeping. Don't skip it today, or if you do, when you get toward the end of it, hang on a bit. i got a couple really important announcements that are going to come at the end of the housekeeping day. Housekeeping item one, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day number one today is WesternBotanicals.com. It was important to me that I have a herbal... Uh, source for you as part of the sponsor lineup. As I started to fill out the sponsorships, you know, I had people coming to me that, you know, did the same thing some other sponsors that Stole long-term storage food and things like that. People that were very similar in their product offering to, let's say, ready-made resources at Safe Castle. I started turning them down because I didn't want all the sponsors to be the same and all compete for the same mind share. And I wanted somebody in that realm. And I looked really hard for supplements, herbals, things. And it was all BS as far as I was concerned, network marketing crap, um, things that were going to save you cure cancer or whatever. And I, I, didn't find Western Botanicals. They actually found me, and when they showed up, it was like, hey, you know, if you're looking for something, sometimes it just happens to show up. Energy kind of works that way in the universe, in my view, anyway. And when I found them, I knew I found the right people, real people that really cared that you could call and get answers from, people that had basically everything in the herbal world, people that had a great discount program they would give away to my members for free, uh, to my premium members, a $50 value for free, and pay for the whole membership people that everything they sold was either organically grown or wild-crafted, and people that said, hey, this stuff does the following things, and it might help you, and it's a gentle alternative, but sometimes you need a doctor. Sometimes you need a medical doctor to handle things, and sometimes you need uh, things that we can't provide to you. That's what I was looking for, integrity, value, honesty, quality. Found it all at westernbotanicals.com. You should check them out today. And remember, if you're going to order stuff and you're a member of our support brigade, get into the benefits area of your MSB account, there's information there on how to call them and set them up on that special discount. And once you set that up, you get 25% off all orders. Uh, regular folks pay 25 or 50 bucks a year, uh, for that, uh, discount membership. So check them out because that pays for your MSP all by itself. Next up today, Backwoods Home Magazine. This is another really great story really for me. I don't know that you guys care, but I care because I've been reading these guys since 93 when I got out of the army and uh you know for like the first year I was dead broke so I just read them at the bookstore bought a cup of coffee and would sit down and read them and other books and magazines uh and kind of figured my coffee was my fee it was my uh, way of getting modern stuff you didn't find in a library cheap uh but once I uh once I got established in life a little bit I subscribed and I've been a subscriber ever since and I think you should be too uh it is the only really great uh, self-sufficiency, self-reliance magazine that I know of that also comes with a ton on homesteading and food preservation and things like that, uh, and, and is environmentally friendly without being eco-hippie-ish, coming from a libertarian angle. I don't know of anything else like it out there. If I did, I'd subscribe to that, too. Uh, check them out today at backwoodshome.com, and they also have an incentive program for new subscribers uh, with our member support brigade, so check that out as well. So that's a great segue. Member Support Brigade. If you're not a member, you should be. Uh, If you're buying stuff, self-sufficiency, self-reliance, liberty-oriented homesteading, tactical, practical, anything like that, long-term storage food, water filtration. If you buy some stuff like that every year, it's almost inevitable that your membership will pay for itself. I've built the value into it. That was the design from day one. Comes out to supporting our show at about 18 cents 3 an episode. Uh, and you do help support the show. That is is part of it. But I want you to realize you do get that return of investment back. And most people tell me they get it back many times over. Um, we're releasing silver right now, and th- there's a discount code for that. I'll talk more about that in a second. Um, and so that's saving on silver. And there's other ways to save on silver, and that's just one thing. Military Law Enforcement Peace Corps, active duty and prior service, and first responders like paramedics, EMTs, and firemen, you guys all qualify for a service discount. We're all thank you for your service uh, by giving you a discount on an already great product. If you email me before, not after you join, service discount in the subject line, and uh, when you do that, um, just tell me who you are and what you're doing or who you are and what you did if you're prior service. Don't get real elaborate. Two or three sentences is plenty just so I know where you're coming from before I send that discount code to you, and that's got the housekeeping wrapped up for the day, uh, but I do have some announcements that are more uh, in-, in tune with what's going on. First and foremost, I've been threatening, and basically that's what it se- seems like at this point, threatening for a long time uh, to do a... Um, a workshop at my house on contour-based woodcore gardening, and I'm going to run that. It's going to be the weekend of Memorial Day, and it's actually going to be Friday, Saturday of that weekend. I didn't really like that at first, but on the other hand, I do think it gives people, you know. and I'll, I'll give you some information on it here, but basically you can show up Thursday evening or you can show up uh, first thing Friday morning when we start the classes. It's up to you. I'm making my property available for camping. I'm making some space available in the house. I'm giving people the freedom to use my outbuildings if they want to put a cot in there and have hard cover. Uh, I've got some camping spots. It don't, I'm not going to go too deep into it right now, but it's going to be a good time. Uh, lunch and dinner served Friday, drinks and a meet-up on Thursday evening for those that show up early and, and camp out or claim their space. Um, no breakfast on Friday. People have to take care of their own breakfast on Friday. Breakfast on Saturday, uh, lunch and dinner on, on Saturday, uh, two full days of classes with a mini excavator, but limited attendance of 20. I announced this a long time ago, and there was a list of about 35 people that said they wanted in. I've emailed at this point 25 of those people. First, I emailed 20. And every time I get a, a thing back from somebody that says I'm not going to be able to make it, I email another person. I will do that until the end of today. Tomorrow, I will open it to the public, any seats that are not claimed by tomorrow. Uh, right now, I only have two that have claimed a spot. So it looks like even with the waiting list of 35, a lot of people can't make it. So the, the opportunity is going to be there. I want to tell you what this workshop is going to cover. Uh it's gonna be really great and I'm allowing people to video, record, do anything they want, so I'm sure there'll be material like that available from it. But site selection, the use of rotary levels, use of A-frame levels, the how, what, and why of wood core beds, uh and you know, why it works, how it works, and we're gonna really look at that deeply so we understand what we're doing. Dealing with that first year of nitrogen loss due to carbon carbon nitrogen cycles, inoculation with fungal inoculants. Uh, developing an underground shallow aquifer, why improving irrigation efficiency is critical to long-term success, developing seed mixes and utilizing them for bed establishment, developing a micro-food forest inside a typical annual garden layout, Uh, and I'm going to try to be planting that and have that in place for you guys before you guys even get here, Though we'll be adding more of them as we go, Uh, choosing your plantings, setting your first-year expectations with this type of system and more, And there's going to be kind of a bonus. I'm going to probably really quick be announcing establishment of a micro-food forest in a more of an urban setting. I've I've selected a 2,700-square-foot area of my property that we're going to do the initial phases this year of a kind of a micro-food forest and build this out over time. But I've got a weekly rate on that excavator, a neighbor who's going to run the equipment for me. He's coming over this week. We're going to get the excavator a few days before the event. We're going to clear out all the, the the disgusting gardens that the neighbors left behind so that we're ready for you guys. But in addition, we're going to bury some stock tanks and do some swaling in this 2,700-square-foot space where you guys will be actually be eating uh, your lunches and dinners. We're going to have some picnic tables in there, make it kind of an oasis, burying a couple 8-foot stock tanks. they are going to be micro-ponds, uh, and we won't be really establishing that food forest but you're going to be able to see the raw earthworks and get it explained to you. And then I'll soon be doing another workshop where we're doing the first stage of establishing that micro food forest, which is going to be a showcase for what people can do on a typical urban suburban lot, even though I have three acres. So that's going to be another workshop, but the people that come to this one are going to get the opportunity to see the initial stages and get kind of a walkthrough of the design that we have planned. It's going to be pretty cool. This is going to be a good time. And again, I can't take everybody. This is the first one. I'm telling you right now, I know we'll screw some things up. But we're catering dinner for Friday and Saturday. So that's, that's going to work out. Uh, you know, we know at least the food will be good. Uh, we're doing fajitas one night and barbecue the next night. Um, we have a lot of stuff already stocked up. We have coolers full of beer for people. We I invite you to bring your own. We have some rules that are part of the document you'll receive if you are invited to the event, uh, today. If you have emailed me and said, put me on the waiting list, And you don't hear from me by about 5 o'clock this afternoon saying, hey, there's the information, something went wrong, forward your original email to me and I will send it to you as well. And I'll take people first come, first serve. Um, and I will give you guys more information tomorrow uh, when whatever seats are left are open to people that are not on the waiting list. I'm going to wait till tomorrow to do that, but this is going to be a great class. Our first one, again, I know I'm telling you flat out, we'll mess some things up, but it's going to be a great learning experience and a good time, and I hope many of you do show up Thursday and camp out or claim a space. We're actually doing, I'll tell you tomorrow, we'll let that go, because i got another announcement for you. Uh, last night we released the Sentinel coin. We did a thousand of the limited editions with the Ant Reverse. They sold out in seven hours. Um, that's awesome. We also have sold a ton of the regular production run Brilliant Uncirculated with the shield, the sword, uh, and the AR and the musket on the reverse. Right now that is about two thousand. So we sold about three thousand of ounces of Sentinels with a thousand being limited editions and a few hundred ounces of Second Amendment, Ant Shields, and things like that. Um, we're very pleased with the results. I'm working right now with Rob Gray to try to get something cool done for you guys. We'll see if he'll play ball, because um, I'm trying to push the, uh, the bogey down a bit. What I'm trying to do is get, if we sell 5,000 ounces by the end of the week, which I, I think we're going to do, everybody will get a free copper coin of some sort. I'm going to see. I don't know if he'll do it. I'm going to see if he'll do the Ant Reverse. Um, with the Sentinel front in copper and give one away to everybody that placed an order. This is what I've proposed. We'll see if I can get them to do because I'm asking a lot here. Understand this. Everybody that will have ordered up until the point we actually announced the final details, no matter what you ordered, You'll get one if we hit 5,000 ounces of the Brilliant Uncirculated. Now, that means we're at two, not three, because the limited editions don't count for this. Okay, so we got to sell 3,000 more coins in a week the rest of the week, and I think we'll do that because, boy, people are jumping on these things. They're just a gorgeous coin. Um, so everybody that's ordered, even if you ordered one, will get one. Everybody after we announce it that orders at least two of the, the Brilliant Uncirculated Sentinels, we'll get one of those free coppers as well. Because we, we can't do it for a single order. But I feel like since we came up with this idea later, it's not right for those of you that did go out and order one to say, hey, your order doesn't count for that. So it'll be everybody up to the point, and then everybody after will have to order at least two. So if you're thinking about ordering only one, on the off chance that I get Rob to commit to this crazy idea, you might want to go ahead and do it now. Um but I'd say, hey, get five of them, get the discount. And if you're an MSP member, man, the discount plus the five point break point, you're at about two bucks over spot on, on an awesome point. And I'm gonna tell you flat out, I don't know how long we're gonna offer this coin. Um it's not gonna just disappear next week. I mean, don't don't see it. What I am not gonna do that to you, that car salesman crap. You know, that's a car salesman sell coins. Um but it won't it won't be around forever. There will come a point where we'll decide based on time or numbers to stop minting the design. We're going to do that pretty much with every coin we come out with because that improves the secondary market value of the coin. I see these coins as two investments. One, they are a flat out, it's a piece of silver. And I'm going to be honest with you. If you have a lump of silver... It's worth about the spot price of silver a little bit less than what a dealer is going to pay you. It doesn't matter if it's a coin, it's a bar, it's a pendant. It's silver. It's a commodity. So there's this underlying value of the silver. Then there's the secondary market. People look at something and go, I want that, and they're willing to pay more for it because of its form. When we limit a minting, we improve that secondary market. When somebody says, boy, I really want one of those sentinel coins – and they say, well, where do I get one? And they find out, well, we only made 20,000 of them and we quit. And it, you find one that exists or you don't get one and they're not making any more. That amount they're willing to pay goes up. So that's a good time thing, right? That's not going to ha, if the shit has hit the fan, no one's going to pay you, you know, or, or value that coin at $20 over whatever a silver coin selling for. But in good times, they will. And if you check out eBay in the secondary market, there's even people out there right now buying survival podcast copper for three or four dollars more than we sold them for. And that's just a copper coin. And there's tons of them out there. And we're not, we haven't discontinued that. We're just not selling them right now. We're going to bring those back. Uh, I've actually seen that coin sell for as much as 10 to 12 bucks and people buy it. Um, it's a cool coin. So, I want you to understand that one of the reasons, like, we're not limiting the production of silver so that you'll buy it. We're actually limiting the production because there is a point of diminishing returns for us. We come out with a new design. It's really hot. People buy it like crazy. And then long term, you know, the orders dwindle down. And when we cap that production it immediately kicks value back into the coins that are already in circulation. It's no different than inflation. You print more dollars, you devalue the others. All right. So um, I'm I'm not saying this to incentivize you to buy. What I'm actually doing is I'm making a commitment to you to protect your investment. That's really what we're doing here. And we're not going to do something stupid like come out with 12 designs a year. Maybe we'll do four. If we can figure out how, maybe we'll do six. I'm looking for ideas for the next coin already. I have some in my head. I mean, the next one I do, I want to be completely awesome. And, uh, you know, what we'll probably do is when we release that, we'll keep this one in circulation. And by the time we reach the third one, we'll we'll pull the first one out. Um, it all depends on how many we sell and how many we put through dealer networks and things like that. But there'll be a point where Rob will tell me a number that we've covered, and I'll just be like, pull it. We're done. And, uh, again, don't freak out. That won't be tomorrow. Um but I'll do it. And it's, it's not, again, a sales technique, it's a commitment to you to do it. I, I guarantee you at some point, I'll cap the minting and improve the secondary market value of something that, and here's why I'm going on and on about this. I'm looking at one right now. And I can't believe I'm gonna do that. <laughs> I don't ever want this thing not to be minted, but I know it's the right decision, so that's what I'm going to do. Anyway, I've got that wrapped up. I want to get into our main topic right now. I'd like to introduce Greg Carter, also known as the Rural Economist. Uh, Greg has a Bachelor of Science degree in Business Management with a minor in Entrepreneurship. He's owned three businesses, sold two of them off for a profit. Unfortunately, the last one was destroyed by the April 27, 2011 tornado outbreak. He's had an active interest in economics since high school. Now he teaches economic principles along with self-reliance baby steps. He's known as Greg Cole on the TSP Forum and Carter Homestead on 13skills.com. He's here to uh, discuss economics from a unique viewpoint with us today. And with that, hey, Greg, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast.
1: Thank you very much. It's an honor to be on the show.
0: Could you give people just a little bit about kind of your background and where you're coming from today? We, We have you on to talk about the role of thrift and becoming more self-reliant and starting to take some baby steps to get that done. So what's your background that's kind of led you there?
1: Well, I was actually raised on a homestead, but we didn't really call it that. We had an 11-acre that we called the garden. Um, we put up food every single year. In fact, my grandparents last year still put up 97 quarts of vegetable soup. Um, We just... The whole family, a extended family, used the same garden. Each family had their own section of stuff that they liked. And then things like corn and potatoes and all like that, we all just threw in together. And When harvested time comes, then everybody was there pulling, chucking, silking, cutting, doing whatever we needed to do. So I was raised around gardening and homesteading and actually prepping, but we didn't call it that. Um, my whole life. Um, I did get away from it for a little while when I grew up and moved out. I've lived in Indiana, lived in Mississippi, and then I'm back in Alabama now. And uh just kind of got back into it. Now, as far as the rural economist, I fell in love with economics probably in the 10th grade. I had uh, one teacher that was absolutely incredible. And uh, it taught me that economics was not just about money. It was about resources. And that resource could be your time, your talent, uh, board of wood, anything. And how you decided what you did with that resource determines your economic outcome. And uh, that's one of the things that I've, in my everyday conversations and things I try to stress is that every decision we make can be an economic decision. Uh, if we decide to uh, sit on the couch and watch TV as opposed to go to work, that's an economic decision. But if we decide after we work to go to the garden or to go fishing, that's also an economic decision.
0: And I, I think that's interesting because there's there's a lot of things that stem from that. We start redefining capital if we do that because – it, when people hear capital, they think of money. Right. But capital now then becomes individual assets.
1: It right. also
0: becomes things like sol- social capital, cultural capital, uh, things like that, uh, then tend to gain value as well. The ability to teach something to a subsequent generation, for instance.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, capital has only meant money for a very short period of time. Um. If you go not too awful far back, especially in the more rural areas of the country, there have been people trading a cow for lumber off and on, and in certain sections of the country, they still do it. So either one of those can be capital. So that's absolutely true, and what we've done is we've allowed ourselves to be programmed into a consumer mindset to where everything is tied A piece of paper instead of to real assets, and that's a problem. Uh, You know, if if somebody comes to me and they want something that I can do, okay, uh, that's a that's my asset, that's a capital that I can put into somebody as an investment or that they can purchase from me um, through some other means, whatever. And that's that's something that we really need to break that process. Now, you actually actually have, board,
0: you actually have a way that you define economics that maybe is a little bit different than a textbook right
1: yeah um, actually economic the standard textbooks now are very different from my definition. Um, if you go far enough back and if you look at some of the archaic definitions, it's a lot closer. Um, hmm. there's one place, what was his name? Oh, man, there was a guy that he said that it was about resources, and I kind of took his, and I've written it down a dozen Buck times. Buckminster Fuller? Huh?
0: Buckminster Fuller?
1: I don't remember right now, I sure don't but I've quoted him several several times but not just in my blog but in everyday stuff but it's been a while since I've had that conversation but economics isn't just money and until we realize that we're kind of tied to the systems that are set in so
0: okay um so you are working hard to teach economics to people. And that generally that's not a thing that, and I think it's partly because of what we've been talking about. People don't even understand what it really means, but people don't usually line up to learn economics in the modern no. world. Uh, it no. sounds stuffy and stodgy. So what made you decide to, to take that on and start trying to teach economics to uh, your fellow citizens, so to speak?
1: Well, honestly, that was my wife's fault. Uh <laughs> My wife and I we haven't been married very long. We've only been together uh, well about four years I guess, right around. There. And um we kept having conversations of why does this happen this way? Um, you know, why do stock prices cost what they do? Why does gas prices fluctuate? Why why can I charge so much for medicines? Why this? Why that? Why this? And I was having to go back and go, okay, well, this is why I had to explain supply and demand, had to explain diminishing returns, had to explain all these stodgy, uh, to use your term, uh, things, but I had to explain it in a way to where my wife, who has absolutely no economics background at all, it, understand it, grasp it, and go, oh, okay, now, can you explain it to somebody else? Um, on my blog I actually explained diminishing returns with chickens because, um, and you've talked about it, you just don't know that you have, or you may know that you have, and you just didn't bring it out. If okay. you set up a chicken pen in the same location, then after just three or four days every bit of the inputs into those chickens has to be from outside. It has to be brought to them. So instantly within the first week you have a diminished return on the chickens because your inputs go up. The more chickens you get, the more eggs you get, but at some point you tip over to where you're no longer able to use all the eggs or sell all the eggs and then you have another diminishing return. By using pasturing or chicken tractors or whatever, you extend point before you get to the diminishing return because your inputs are so much lower. So that's one way that that everybody out there that listens to you or that reads my blog or that's into the homesteading thing at all can go, oh, okay, so that's what they're talking about. The amount of money you have to put in in order to achieve a certain amount of output coming out goes up, that's a diminishing return.
0: Correct, and there's other other sides to that formula as well. So um, if I look at, yes, this egg is costing me X dollars or X cents, and a dozen of them are costing me X dollars, there's a point at which I go, yeah, I'm, I'm spending the money on those eggs. But I also have to look at things like I have to eat, I have to spend money on food, and there's a market rate for eggs where even if my inputs uh, are costing me to produce those eggs, I still have a positive net return if I'm producing that egg for less than I could buy it for. And I'm not producing uh, you know, a mass-produced uh, egg. I'm producing a fully healthful, organic, free-range egg. Correct. Yeah. And I have to compare eggs to eggs rather than eggs to cheap eggs when right. I make that analysis.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Um, there is a major difference in qualities there. You cannot count quantities because when you try to go quantity versus quantity, the little guy's gonna get defeated every time. But when you go on the quality side and go look, my chickens have a much more healthy lifestyle. My chickens are much happier. My chickens I can show you exactly everything that's fed them I don't have a problem showing you everything that we feed I can show you where I grow some of the food I can show you what I grow it with uh, everything then you have this trained this traceability that you don't have the ability if you go to your local grocery store and you pick up a, a dozen of eggs and if you've ever cracked a fresh egg versus one that you buy from the store, there's an instantaneous difference that you can see. You know,
0: and what's funny is people that have never seen one actually find it to be a problem. They're, like, kind of put off by it because it doesn't look the same to them. Even though it looks better, the fact that it's different, they don't get it. Right. I've actually heard people, like, what's wrong with this egg? It's healthy. (laughs) (laughs) Right. You know, yeah. it's, it's got nutrients and stuff in it. And, I mean, from the economic viewpoint, though, wouldn't you say then that the small producer has to go after the quality market? Yes. Period. Yes. And, that's the, and if they try to compete with the mass-produced market and try to be lower than that or the same price as that, they're going to get slaughtered.
1: Oh, they're going to get slaughtered every time. Every time. There is no way to produce a quality egg or a quality ham or anything. There's no way to produce something that has that much quality and would compete on price with the Kroger's, the Winn-Dixie's, the Walmart grocery stores, the things like that. There's just there's no way to try to compete with them because they're feeding, you know, all the byproducts and all the things in there, and they've got all of the secret ingredients in their foods. That there's there's just no way. Um, yeah,
0: and I mean, you think about it this way. So what you said is very interesting. I think most organic producers uh, and mo- most small producers, especially you know, artesian producers of product or 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 end product or even just direct animal product, eggs, chickens, what have you. If you said to them, we'd like to do a feature and put you on the internet or on TV and send a film crew over to film your operation would give you complete transparency where the mass producers are trying to get laws passed to make it a crime to bring a camera near their operation.
1: That's right.
0: And and that should tell people just from an economic standpoint alone, where you're coming from a lot about why that product seems so inexpensive. Right. And see,
1: the thing that that I push with people is, okay, yes, that ground beef is so much cheaper. Yes, it is. Okay. I understand that it is cheaper. But how is that cow grown? What conditions is that cow raised in? We can, I can show you videos of the last several weeks of its life. It's in a feedlot where it doesn't even see a blade of grass. Now tell me that it's cheaper when you realize how much healthier a grass fed beef is that you can go out to the farm and you can point at the cow and go in six weeks that will be a dinner plate
0: well and then look at this this little economic puzzle here so I can go to Sam's Club and I can buy a rotisserie cooked chicken they've grown the chicken they've butchered the chicken they've prepared the chicken they've cooked the chicken they've packaged the chicken and they've had people sell me the chicken in the store for yeah. $4.99. Now, yeah. as a small producer, I couldn't raise that chicken and sell it to you alive for $4.99 yeah. and make a profit. So yeah. something has to be very wrong in the production model for the economy to work. I don't care how big the economy of scale is there. it's a, This is not a cog that goes into a watch, right? Yeah. This is a living entity that eats and needs to take care of waste and needs to live for a period of time. And the economy of scale doesn't work out unless there's extreme neglect and abuse in the system to that living creature.
1: Okay. You know, um, my aunt, she still raises commercial chickens. And in her large house, when they have babies go in, they'll have 125 baby chicks, 125,000 baby chicks go in. And depending upon weather and situations and all like that, they can lose... Five to 7,000 ch- chicks and never bat an eye. Yeah. And whereas I, you know, I have seven chickens. And if I lose one, I want to know why. Sure. Some of my friends, they'll raise 25 or 50. I've got a friend that he runs 50 leg birds. He'll run them through. He harvests. He waits a couple of weeks, and then he runs 50 more fruit, He harvests, and then he does it all organic and everything based on what I would consider right. And you're right. There's no way that he could produce that size of bird for that price live.
0: No. He probably couldn't grow it 70% of the way there and sell it to you for $5.00. Um, and let you finish it and make a profit. And it's, and it's, it, it, it's, it's interesting because what you're saying there, you think you go back to like an economic viewpoint, right? Just an accountability. Right. So I have 17 birds every night when I stick them in the coop, I do a head count, right? right? Am I, is anybody missing? Is anybody out there in the tall grass? Do I need to go look for him? Right. If I had 200 birds coming into that hen house, I couldn't do it. I couldn't physically count them. It, it wouldn't be possible. And there's a certain amount of care that we can give when we're intensively managing things. And I kind of want to rope this back into what we – because we got off on the subject because it's just interesting stuff. But what you really came on to talk about today is people's personal economies. Yes. So I just want to say that that's kind of like part of my personal economy now, right? So it's not just about whether I have eggs or not. The chickens themselves are an asset. I have to to care for that asset. I have to manage that asset. And it can either be productive or consumptive depending on how
1: I manage it. And that asset can be used as a uh, kind of your uh, net worth, or it can be used as a trade-off. It can be used as a currency. That's That's the neat thing about most assets is in the right situation, everything can either be made to contribute to your net worth, be a currency, be just a simple asset, can be a productive asset, Everything in the homestead lifestyle, everything in the homestead lifestyle is a productive asset or can be. Now, as far as personal economies, everything goes into play. You know, when we sit down and we write our bills out at the end of every month, you know, I know how many cents per kilowatt hour they charge me when I have electricity. And I go, okay, why did we burn X number of kilowatt hours? What happened? Why is this month so much higher than last month? It may just be that the temperature was higher. Or it may be that somebody left the computer on all night. Or it may be, you know, X, Y, Z, whatever. Um, it may
0: have been really hot or really cold that month more than normal right. and you may have had to run your climate control more.
1: Right. Yeah. You could have to run your heater or air more. Absolutely. But there's, a, if you take the time and actually look at it, then you can figure out why there are anomalies. I mean, I don't think there's any such thing as an average year anymore. Um, This year, we've had an extremely cool beginning to May and extremely wet. Um, And I was trying to think back in 92 or 93, we had a similar year. That year, I was not able to even put a garden in because it was cold in the June. Um, but everything that we have, my chainsaw is an asset. It's an economic asset because I can use it to cut firewood to heat me with. I can use it to clear the neighbor's yard for a little bit of money if I need to. I can use it for any number of things, but it's an asset.
0: Um, including if you had to, you could hawk it.
1: That's true. Right? Absolutely, You could sell it or you
0: could leverage it like people did before, every, there were payday loans and everything like that. The, the local pawn shop was often how people got through a lean time. They would take an item down there, they would they would they would borrow money against it, and then they would go and they would get it back out of hawk, so to speak. Right. So there's there's if a real asset should be able to be leveraged for direct monetary yield in multiple ways. One, by putting it into action and using it to generate income. Two, by leveraging debt against it, which I don't think is a great idea, but in some situations that is merit. And three, by dissolving the asset and selling it for compensation.
1: Right, absolutely. And the thing about it is is you have to look at everything that you have that way. Or you can look at everything you have that way. Uh, My wife's aunt, so my aunt. Her husband died two years ago, and I actually wrote an article on this. And she had some friends that were pushing her to sell a lot of her husband's items. He had some really old firearms, and and he had a really nice car and all of these things. And she did sell the car, but she still held it on to the firearms. And what I told her was, I said, look, you've got to understand, they do not have any say in this decision. And it doesn't matter, and I try to apply this rule, both buying and selling. If you'll take an item in your hand and you'll ask yourself these questions. One, do I need this? Two, do I want this? Three, will I be sad if I don't have it or if it's gone? If you can't answer those three questions right, then you don't need to sell or buy. (laughs) <laughs> I think that's
0: absolutely great. I wish our government did that when they were deciding. Oh Lord have I, mercy,
1: yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I, because the, the one more thing that the, the 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 question should be is where's the money going to come from? Uh, you know, where am I going to get the money, and what am I sacrificing once I've spent that money? I mean, right. a lot of times people think, well, if I have the money and I want to buy this thing, then there's no problem because I'm not leveraging debt. But the, other, but, the, but the money's gone. It's now it's, – it's now, actually, I'd like your thoughts on this. I've always tried to explain money this way. Money is a symbol for energy, and yeah. therefore it's subject to the laws of physics. There's only two real forms of energy in existence, kinetic and potential. Right. And while that money is sitting in an account, there might be a little bit of kinetic energy there with some interest or something like that. But basically, it's, it represents potential energy. When I push it into the economy and it it causes an exchange of value, at that point, the potential energy becomes kinetic. And once I've expended that potential energy, unless I've created a a way that's going to rebound it back to me, such as loaning it where it's going to come back. So now I've put it into and it's going to continue to rebound and I'm going to reclaim it. If I've spent it, it's gone. I no longer have that energy. And I have to expend my own energy to acquire more of that symbolic energy and bankroll it before I can do it again. So now I've expended that. And I yes. think that a lot of people in their personal economies don't realize that money you've saved actually got there through your own energetic output.
1: Yes. All, nearly all, nearly all resources are mutually exclusive. Means, that means that when I have $10 in my pocket, As long as I keep that $10 in my pocket, I have $10 worth of baskets. The minute that I choose to utilize that $10, that $10 is gone from me forever. It cannot be used to buy a hamburger and it cannot be used to go to the movies. It can't be done with both. The same thing is true with time. When I choose to go out to the garden, I cannot use that same amount of time to go fishing. I cannot use that same amount of time to go hunting. Once I decide to use it and I put it into action, that has been spent. It is a mutually exclusive asset. And a lot of people don't realize it. it. But as soon as you use one of those assets, that part of that asset is gone. And that should
0: make us value it more and think more about what we're getting on the return side. If I spend $10 and go watch a movie, I get the entertainment value, but I really don't have anything that I can hold on to. If the film happens to be educational, though, and I gain knowledge from it that I can apply in the future, I go from an entertainment value to a knowledge value and a greater return of personal investment. That's
1: correct. Yes. Uh, Entertainment and I love to be entertained just like anybody else. It has the lowest rate of personal return of any activity out there.
0: Unless you get tricked into learning something.
1: Yeah. I mean, if, <laughs> you, yeah, there, there have been situations where I learned something that where I was not expecting to.
0: That happens to everybody.
1: Um, but in general, something adds to my knowledge base or adds to my skill base is way worth more to me than going and seeing the local blockbuster.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, and I'll do it from time to time because it is fun. We just My I mean, wife and I went and saw Jimmy Buffett. I, I mean, love Jimmy Buffett. It was fun, but we spent a lot of money, and the money's gone, and it ain't coming back. And I really could have sat around the backyard, drank a margarita, and listened to a Jimmy Buffett CD and, and got a lot of the same – Value, but I would have lost the entertainment of experience of being surrounded by fifty thousand other people that were there for the same reason. But that was not an investment; that was an indulgence.
1: Oh yes, yeah, and it's okay to indulge sometimes. That's something else. You cannot be serious all the time. It can't happen if you do. But don't you
0: think it's the, the 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 place that that really goes off the 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 third rail? Then is okay. I have the money. I spend the money, it's gone, I've had an indulgence, it's over, that's fine. When people fund those indulgences with debt, though, the dynamic changes drastically, does it not?
1: Well, when when you fund anything with debt, except maybe, well, except a house, when you fund anything with debt except a real asset, the dynamic changes. If I go with a credit card to Burger King, and I buy Burger King, then not only have I filled my belly with subpar food for a while, but I've also attached attached a commitment to me that I won't see for 30 days. And I have actually, by doing that, put myself in hawk at a time in the future. That's the same thing that our government is doing right now is they're spending their money on the latest craze or whatever they want to do. And they're just, they're putting it on the credit card. They're putting it on the credit card. They're putting it on the credit card. And every time that they get close to their limit, they go, Oh, okay. They just pay the interest on the credit card and then they raise their own limit.
0: Yeah, they, they issue themselves a new card. Unlike us who has to actually at some point pay the Piper, they can kick that can a number of times. I got a good one for you. Um I I you know, since you were at work today, I know you didn't hear what will be for everybody else listening yesterday's show, but it's today's show where I put out a, a little factoid on the GDP and as an economist you'll like this. Um, you won't like it, but you'll, you'll 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 stand in awe at the ridiculous and absurdity of this. So right now, one of the biggest economic indicators in America is our GDP. It's a number yes. that everybody looks at, and they've just done something that you almost can't accept they've, they've been able to do this and get away with it. Right now, let's say you have a pension at work, and they put money in your pension fund for you. That goes down as wages in the GDP, and it should because I, even though you don't get it yet, I've paid it to you. But not every entity, especially state, county, city governments, actually puts that money there. Some of them put a promise of money there in the future. And, and the state of Wisconsin says, why, why should we worry about fully funding this guy's 25-year-from-now retirement obligation? We can tax for it. The state GDP, all this stuff goes up. So maybe there's a case that some of that money doesn't need to be there right now. But it shouldn't go in the GDP because it's only a promise of money. It's not money. Well, guess what they've done? Those expenditures now are factored into calculating the gross domestic product. What do you think of that?
1: <laughs> I think that there's nothing better than being able to put invisible money into something that we use to measure the health of our country. Um, <laughs> I mean, doesn't I mean, that
0: just make you sit there and go? So that means that, that like, okay. If the state of Wisconsin or Illinois does something really, really stupid like promise to super increase the the future uh, pension because a union negotiation went the right way for the union, that all of those additional unfunded liabilities instead of being seen as a liability are put down on the balance sheet today as real spending and therefore become a national asset.
1: Well, now, see, the same thing could be used if they would allow you to say, okay, I'm going to – in my Roth IRA or my investments, I'm not going to put $2,000. I'm going to put $1,000 with with an IOU in there, so just go ahead and count it, too.
0: (laughs) And let me take the tax deduction
1: right? and let me start collecting
0: the interest on it, too, right?
1: Yeah. And, Um,
0: And don't worry. I'll put it in there someday. Oh, yeah. Eventually, I'll get there, yeah.
1: A publishing like clear buy- house is coming, you know, it'll be fine. It it's like
0: buying stock on margin without actually having to have a margin account.
1: hmm That's a, that's exactly what it is. And on another note, I don't don't remember if you sent it out or something. you tend to follow Russian Times and I follow Russian Times. But they had an economist on the Russian Times probably about two months ago. And, you know, we're at sixteen point whatever trillion dollars in debt or whatever. Uh he said that if you count in the unfunded mandates is more like twenty five trillion dollars. Right now. Right now.
0: Yeah. Right now. Because the unfunded obligations and the unfunded liabilities between now and twenty fifty are a hundred and twenty three trillion dollars. So now, the longer you look at the timeline, the worse this becomes.
1: If if the federal government today decided, okay, we're going to change our money and we're going to make grains of sand money, we would have to remove whole beaches in order to pay off our debt.
0: <laughs> so how does that – I mean, what does the, the little guy need to, to, to do then because that means that saving money only takes you so far, that people have to look at this more holistic view of their personal economy as you were talking about in the beginning, Right.
1: Right. Well, okay. What we have done, and what I tell my my family and my friends to do, is now I do put into the 401k here at work. They have a really good match. Um, I get to choose what it's under, and I'm in there every day, and I'm adjusting and everything like that, which now you'll find this interesting. There is no cash option on my 401k. It is a bond option.
0: Yeah, yeah, they 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 very quietly made that change, and I gotta believe there was some level of, of of federal intervention that caused that, because as soon as you remove the cash option, and you have people with five, ten, fifteen, twenty percent of their four hundred one ks depending right. on their conservative nature sitting in cash, and it just quietly moves into bonds. Well, most of those bonds tend to be U.S. government bonds federal or state state municipal. Yep. right, so all of a sudden, this crisis of people not being willing to turn the debt over just gets silently taken care of with our retirements, and most people have no idea that that happened they They don't even know that it that it just changed and no. they, they just check the most safe fund now for that 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 nest egg and they're actually funding the very uh government that's committing this destructive process when they do that. They're not holding cash, they're holding a promise of cash
1: that's right. That's right. Now, what, what I do, though, is on top of that, is I stress investing in yourself. Now, investing in yourself is learning a new skill, is getting a durable asset. Now, a brand-new pip truck, as much as I'd love to have one, is not a durable asset. It depreciates so rapidly in value that you cannot count it as an asset long-term, you can count it as a tool to develop assets, but you can't really count it as a true long-term asset. Long-term assets are things like skills, knowledge, long-term tools, the ability to use those tools. Uh, I have a small amount in silver. Um, I have which I've heard you do it. Me and my family go through the copper pennies and we pull out all the 1981s and older. We've got those over there because it's fun. Um, it's fun
0: and it's it's free, basically. Yeah, it's I mean.
1: basically free. Um, and, you know, it's just when you look at the world in a different light and you go, okay, what can I do with this? That's one thing that the homesteaders, the preppers – all of those folks do very differently. You say it all the time, don't look at it as a problem, look at it as a solution. And you look at a situation and go, Okay. It stinks or whatever it happens to be. And you go, Now, how can I use a situation? What can I do with that? I'm about to tear down a house and rat this get the uh, backhoe out there and collapse it, we're gonna tear it apart because You cannot tell me that there's not good lumber in there, and I'll get me a good workshop out of just tearing it down. Sure. Will it take longer? Sure. Will it take more sweat? Sure. But it's not going to take near as much money because I'm doing it in my spare time, and it's going to save me money because I'm not going to have to buy
0: supplies.
1: And if I have way more need, then I can barter it.
0: Correct. And how old is the house?
1: Uh, it was built in '56, so okay. Well, then something. the quality
0: of the lumber that's in there is greater than the quality of lumber that you can buy today. We don't even grow trees the way we did in 1950. If you said 1850, um, you, you probably could make a lot of money selling it as reclaimed lumber. But even 1950, you're looking at a quality of wood that doesn't exist on the store shelves today.
1: Well, the floor joists are four by six oak. <laughs> Have yeah, price that and
0: uh i mean that wood is probably harder today than it was the day that they put it in we had oak beams in my cellar in pennsylvania that when i put nails in there to hang deer carcasses so i could skin them and quarter them down there i had to use those uh those nails that look like a peg that they yeah. drive into concrete yeah. because a normal nail flat out would not go into that wood and when i tried to drill it with a drill bit even a really good drill bit driven by a DeWalt drill, the drill bit started smoking. Yep. I mean, oh, yeah. the, the quality of that wood, that, that wood was from about 1850 I mean, you cannot get that today. And if you can, the price is astronomical.
1: Oh, yeah. Um, there's just there's just so much that we can do if we'll look at it. And, uh, you know, we've we talked about simple steps to becoming more self-sufficient. What are some
0: baby steps? Cause that's what you advise, right? You advise people here, just get started down the path yeah. to, to better running your, your personal economy. So what are, what are some of your top steps for people to just start heading in that direction?
1: Okay. Um, first thing I try to do is I try to, I'm giving definitions. Uh, self-reliant is the ability to maintain oneself for a short period of time. Self-sustainable is the ability to, maintain oneself without exterior inputs indefinitely. Self-sustainable is the ability to maintain oneself indefinitely, but having to have a marketplace. I don't know anybody that can be 100% self-sustainable by themselves. A community could be, because I'm not a blacksmith. I'm not a bad carpenter, but I'm not a blacksmith, and I'm dang sure not a mechanic, which you are, okay? Correct. Um, you know, I can get the Haynes book out and do a little bit, but that's all that I can do. I Once it gets too deep, I have to call some help. So my goal is to teach people to be self-sustainable. If you cannot produce everything that you need, be able to produce enough in excess of something that you can trade for the other things you need. 80 steps are, one, budget. Get you a budget, get your spending in order. This past week, we paid off our last debt. We How'd that feel? Just, just as an
0: aside free. there, how good did that feel?
1: It's awesome. We are <laughs> debt-free except for the house, and we don't lack a heck of a lot on the house.
0: That's Awesome.
1: Um, So, step number one. Step number two, if you're able, start producing some of your own food. You don't have to go out and buy seeds or plants or anything like that. It depends on what you have. You can grow onions from the base of the onions that you buy at the grocery store. You just start them in water and it grows up. Now, I guess it's not going to have the big bulb like the ones in the grocery store have, but they're going to look more like leeks, but you can still eat those. You can do that with celery, and celery produces good doing that. Yeah, celery is
0: awesome. That makes, buying, that makes buying organic celery so much easier you leave the core or the center of that, you plant it in the ground, and it just starts growing again. And every time you buy some, you can create another celery plant. That's and, right. and that And that is an awesome way to reuse a resource.
1: Absolutely. And it becomes depending where you are in the United States. Uh, that's a perpetual resource, except in the summer when it gets too hot.
0: Correct. And I it's mean, also, I'll tell you what, anybody who's ever tried to start celery from seed – it's a hell of a lot easier to buy your celery until you get enough of it growing that you can use it. Starting celery from seed is a bitch. Never tried I've had very poor results with that. I've got a few good plants out of it, but no it's nowhere near as easy as just shove the core in the ground and, and, and water it and fertilize it until it establishes.
1: Right. I've never tried celery from seed.
0: Don't do it. It's a waste of no. time. <laughs> Um, it, it, it's really not. It could be done, but it, it is is one of more difficult plants to do from seed.
1: Yeah. Um, just simple steps like that. Find a local producer. Go talk to the local producer. Something that I have done for years, and I this year is the first year that I've put in strawberry plants. But for the past four years, I there's a uh, grow your own, uh, pick your own strawberry place over here. I went over there, and I go, look. I said, I know they don't do it anymore, but they used to do this when I was a kid. I said, if I pick three gallons and give you two, can I not pay for the one? And she's like, now, say that again. (laughs) Because she'd never heard of it. Yeah. I said, I will come to your farm, and I will pick three gallons, and for every three gallons I pick, you get two, and I get to keep one, and you don't charge me anything. She said, uh, okay. So for the past four years, I've gone to the same farm. I've picked enough strawberries to put up my little bit of jam or my frozen strawberries or whatever, and I have not had to pay a cent for strawberries except for sweat and time.
0: And that's getting creative, and it's getting creative with one of what I call the, the best fruits to grow or acquire, because I call a strawberry the pepperoni of fruits and vegetables. Oh, yeah. And the reason I call it, call it that is every kid, uh, there's a few exceptions, but pretty much when you take kids from Little League or something to a pizza place, what does everybody want? Pepperoni. Every kid will eat pepperoni. Most right. kids, anyway. Every kid eats strawberries, man. I mean, that's the one thing. You could be like, come on, eat your greens, eat your beans, eat eat your broccoli, whatever, you know, even eat your apple or whatever. I don't want to eat strawberry, man. Eat that, you know. It's just a universally appealing thing.
1: Right. And I have done that with sweet potatoes. I've done that with corn, where they don't use the big harvester, where they're actually pulling old heirloom sweet corn. Yeah, I mean, when I was a kid. Cob. That was
0: the way we used to make pocket money. We'd go, we'd go pick corn for farmers like that because you can't, you can't line a harvester up and go picking corn that's going to be corn on the cob from an right. heirloom plant. You can't do it.
1: Right. right. So that's something that that may be available in everybody's area. You just got to go find out, and you're not going to want to go to one of the big industrial producers. You're going to want to go to small mom and pop shops. Go to your farmers market and talk to those folks. I have known people that have done it with I've known people that have done it with all kinds of things and you'd never know if that option's available if you don't ask.
0: Yeah, I, I completely agree. And and you might even find a place that maybe not want to do it a hundred percent, but give you a very, very deep discount for that type right. of exchange right. as well. It's oh, yeah. all about negotiation, and it's all about producers and consumers getting to know each other again.
1: Right, right. just it. I, I, if I could work my will, if I had a magic wand and I could just do, wave it across the nation, and everything happened the way I wanted it to, there would not be a person in this country that would buy vegetables from somebody they couldn't speak to. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And I think that some people think, well, if we had this food distributed everywhere and it was that easy to acquire, you know would there be an economy left based on? I think there'd be a huge one, and what it makes me think was I was in the army in Panama in nineteen you know eighty nine nineteen ninety um and there were these little kids that would pick these fruits from the trees called mimones, which were kind of they would kind of look like a, a big old hairy eyeball, and you pop them open, and the thing inside was kind of like a tropical plum, okay, and there were trees everywhere with these things, and these kids would sell them for a dollar a bag. You know what? People bought them because yep. they didn't have to go out and, and collect them, and the price was fair, and the kid could pick them from the wild for free, and those kids could make you know $10 an hour selling something that was an actual resource versus maybe 5 if they were out there begging. It was good for everybody, and it wasn't like they were selling something really rare. They were just adding the value. Here it is. I've gone and done the work for you. And there's a million different permeations of that that could be done. And I think if we can stimulate the, a distributed local food system, that an economy of food gets bigger, not smaller. Right. Oh, yeah. It, just may not all be, it may not all be measured in dollars, though. It may also be measured in labor and other exchanges.
1: Absolutely. Which government
0: doesn't like because it's a lot harder to tax that, isn't it?
1: <laughs> oh, it's a lot hard. It's very difficult to tax sweat.
0: Yeah. They want you to pay it, but you have to tell them what you think it was worth, and let them know about it. And uh, there is a certain amount of keeping things close to the vest uh, in in the world of intelligence, you know.
1: <laughs> yeah, um, the thing about it is is t- depending upon where you are in Texas. I know you said North Texas, Alabama, where I live. I still live in a very agrarian county. I don't. I live on a half-acre homestead, which I am slowly transforming into a really nice place. When I got there, it was trashed up. There's a well on the place, but it was piled full of garbage. I have cleaned it. I've just worked real hard, and now we've got blueberries and blackberries. We've got our garden, and we got some peaches, and we're going to be adding some other things. And we've got the chickens. But we still live in a very agrarian society, and there's still a lot of mom-and-pop growers where you can, okay, okay, I've got zucchini like mad, uh, and I didn't plant any cayenne peppers, let trade. Now, there's no, even if you told everything, there's no taxable transfer there.
0: Because it's a it's, it's a, a value non-profitable
1: exchange, right? It's a value-for-value value exchange. Well,
0: what it was? What was the value of the zucchini that you gave this guy? Ten bucks. What was the value of the peppers you re, you received? Ten, bucks. Ten dollars. It was a one. well. Then who made a profit? Nobody. Right. And the exactly. number of the value is arbitrary. For all we could say, well, it was worth a dime. So we traded a dime for a dime not only do you not get nothing, even if you did get something, you get a penny and go away.
1: Right. (laughs) And the thing about it is with produce, the value of the produce fluctuates so widely depending upon the time of the season.
0: Heck, by a couple microseconds, the way they do that fancy uh, high-volume trading, we could have both lost money.
1: Right. (laughs) Because the first watermelon that goes north out of Florida They get five, six dollars a piece. Yeah. Within three weeks, those uh, those babies are three dollars and fifty cents. Within six weeks, they're two dollars all day long. Yeah. So that's a big thing about that is how do you how would they be able to trace value? And I'm sorry, I know that there are probably some former farmers up there, but they don't have enough resources to have somebody in every single market to determine the fair market value of a fresh egg or a uh, peck basket of okra or whatever. They don't have that ability. And just being able to do something on your own. If you live in an apartment, I understand you can't grow a full-grown garden, but you can grow herbs, which come at a premium. They can be organic, which you can trade or sell to be able to buy other things.
0: Yeah, and they do come at a huge premium. And if you look at the cost of things like fresh basil, fresh dill, and things like that, right. or even dried organic—I mean, there's a—you know—there's this crop that some people grow that they make lots of money on. The leaf's got five different lobes on it, you know. Yeah, violet. I know what you're talking about. And, and, and reality is, some completely legal herbs sell for more an ounce than that stuff. Yep. Um, what's the saffron? That's like the most expensive thing on planet Earth, and it's basically uh, material that comes out of a, a crocus flower.
1: I did not know that, but that's—I <laughs> know it's that it's ridiculously herbs. expensive.
0: If you've ever had paella, the the Portuguese rice thing, that's what they make the the rice with. That saffron—it's a—it's a, it's a flower, oh, wow. and it's the the stamens of that flower produce this yellow. And it's a very little bit of it is needed, but that stuff's—I don't even. Like some kind of crazy ass price when you do the math. If you, go, you go look at it in the store and it's a jar like you buy any other seasoning in. But in the jar is a little envelope. And the right. envelope is just the little, uh, the stamens of the flower. Well, when you look at the, like, price per ounce or something like that, you know, where they show you that, it's right. something I don't remember, but I'm not going to say it because I'll be wrong, but it's ridiculous.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, everybody can produce something. Everybody. Even if it's just in a windowsill garden. Everybody can produce something. And the cool thing about it is, is if if you were close enough, okay, I could give you some cuttings off my oregano and you could give me some basil seed and we can share and we can grow and we can do and we can improve everybody around us. We really can. We can improve everybody around us. When they do the inflation numbers, those inflation numbers don't count energy. And they do count buying a house every year. I don't understand that. (laughs) Property values are linked into inflation, and I don't know anybody who buys a house every year. Everybody I know has to fill up their gas tank once a week. Correct. Everybody that I know, well, not everybody. I know four or five people that are off-grid that I actually know
0: but everybody
1: has to buy energy. It wasn't three years or two years ago that peanut butter went up 50% at one time.
0: Well, you know, even the people that are off-grid, they bought that panel. They just bought all their energy at once, and and they're taking it out over time. So there's still a cost there
1: that, yeah. So uh, a lot of the numbers that we are fed are so... Wrong, that it ought to be criminal. The it would be,
0: it would be in any other realm. If if a company did what the government does with numbers, every person involved in that wouldn't be in jail. They'd be under the jail. I mean, it would make Bernie. It, what they do it makes Bernie Madoff look like a choir
1: boy. Oh yeah. It would, it would be ten times worse than, and you'll probably remember this, the Enron scandal. It would be yeah. ten times yeah. worse than that, because they cooked the books. That's what they did. Okay, down here, we had, uh, Hell South, that they were cooking the books and they got convicted of bribery. Okay, you can't tell me that all of these same things don't go on, especially the cooking books, because it's obvious. And yet, due to the fact that they fall under the realm of government, it's okay. Um, The government is the only entity on the planet that has the right, and I use that term loosely, to confiscate things from people at the point of a gun. There is no company and no company that has that right. If you don't pay your taxes, they can come with a firearm and throw you in prison. Now, here's another thing that I find interesting. It's not illegal not to pay your taxes. It's illegal not to file your taxes. <laughs> I, I yeah. know people that don't own anything, and they file their taxes every year, and they're probably hundred grand in debt, and when they die, I feel sorry for their kids because they're getting nothing. But that's the way that they choose to live, and I understand their thought process. But they're hurting the ones they care about in order to make a statement against the government. So. But.
0: So you you've been doing this stuff for a while. You've got a website, right, where people can connect with you and learn more about the, the stuff you're teaching.
1: I do. Um, I run the Rural Economist dot blogspot dot com. Um, I'm also a member of the Homestead Bloggers Network, which you had a uh, guest last week, the Frugal Upstate, that's also a member of that. Um, and believe it or not, I have recently been asked to be kind of a newsy kind of uh, contributor for a site called uh, called Untrained Housewife. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, I, I, was, I was shocked and honored, and uh, Untrained Housewife is a, it's full of resources. I wish they'd have chosen a different name, but that's okay. Um, they've got a lot of information. It's incredible. Uh, they've got a bunch of contributors. Uh, the last article that I wrote for them was about putting aspartame in the milk and why they were wanting to do that and and what the side effects could be, and that's extremely concerning. Um, and Let's see. I should have one out here real soon on there about tick-borne diseases. Um, I cover generally pretty much news and health-related stuff on Untrained Housewife. Uh, on the blog, I, uh, I cover just whatever's happening in my life, what I'm trying to do in the garden, how I'm trying to do the chickens and things like that, hopefully to encourage folks. Uh, I have several people that that email me regularly, keep me updated on this experiment or that experiment, Um, which now I took one of your experiments and I modified it and I put it on mine, and i got to tell you about it. Okay. I I planted potatoes, and you had kept talking about putting cardboard down and putting straw over the top of it for a raised bed. Correct. Well, what I did is I put the potatoes in, and as soon as they got big – and I, I put cardboard around them and spread it with wheat straw around it. And the ones that I put the wheat straw and the cardboard around are twice the size of the others that I didn't do it. And I think it's because it's acting as a heat blanket to keep the roots warm on these cold nights and they're growing faster.
0: And the thing is, it'll turn around for you if it gets too warm.
1: Can't and keep it it, it'll
0: keep it cooler when it's, when it's too hot, because potatoes yes. like yes. cool weather to a point. They're, a, they're really you know, from the Andean Mountains. That's, that's really cool that you're doing that. So and, uh,
1: I don't know what the harvest is going to be like on each, but I, I I will let everybody know as soon as I do it. So.
0: Very cool. Well, hey, man, I appreciate you being with us today, especially taking your lunch hour to do it in.
1: Oh, this has been a great honor. I appreciate it.
0: All right, folks, and with that, this has been Jack Spirica today along with Greg Carter. Helping you figure out how to live that better life, times to get tough, or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days. You know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I
1: don't
0: know the answer. It's like there's
1: nothing I can do.